I'm sorry that you, uh, you're hearing so much from me today. Normally we try and mix it up a little bit in terms of somebody else doing what I was just doing and doing the announcements, but today you get a lot of me. So we are continuing a mini-series that we, um, well, I began a few weeks ago. Um, this is a mini-series on life in the church, and specifically how God intends to use each of us in the church. And this is a twofold thing, of course. God intends to use you in the lives of others in the church, and God intends to use others in the church in your life. Okay? So, you need to be an active part of the local church for your own spiritual good, and you need to be an active part of the local church because of how God intends to use you in the lives of other Christians. Our first sermon in this series looked broadly at the idea of speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. And that is a term that comes from Ephesians chapter 4. From Ephesians chapter 4. And we saw there that speaking the truth in love is something that God uses to bring us to maturity as Christians. And the way this works is that Preachers and teachers preach God's word, you will hear God's word, and then you not only apply God's word to your own life, you not only just receive it in your own life, but you now take that word and you speak that word, you speak that truth into the lives of others according to their life circumstances, according to the needs that they're going through at a given time. And this is how God builds us up to the place of maturity where we can stand in the midst of false teaching, in the midst of trials and tribulations in life, and we can live a holistic, God-honoring life. The book of Ephesians then goes on and looks at all sorts of areas of life, life in the local church, life in our homes in terms of marital relationships and parenting, uh, it looks at, at life in the workplace, okay? And how we can grow into a mature Christian, a Christ-like Christian who honors God in each of those areas. We need to speak the truth in love to one another. And then, um, a week after that, we looked at another need that we have, another way that God uses each of you in the lives of one another. And that is a need for perseverance. The need to keep living the Christian life all the way to the end. Or to use the metaphor that is used in the book of Hebrews to keep running the race. To keep running the race of the Christian life all the way to the end. Now I want to emphasize here, just as I emphasized in that sermon, right? We are not saved by our performance. We're not saved because we obey better than somebody else. We're not saved because of certain things that we do or don't do. However, right? Somebody with saving faith, somebody who 
who has embraced Jesus as their Savior, somebody who has embraced Jesus as the Lord of their life, somebody who has embraced Jesus as God, very God, as He is, that person will live a life of obedience to God. They will turn away from their sin and they will follow God. You will see their faith lived out. And so, what the book of Hebrews basically says is, it says, look, if your life is going a certain way, if you, li- if you are not running the race of the Christian life, you're not believing. You're not actually believing. What your life is evidencing is that you don't actually have this saving faith. That you don't actually uh, have the trust in God, in Jesus. The love for Jesus that saving faith has. Okay? And so, when we talk about encouraging one another to keep living the Christian life, what we're saying is we've got to encourage one another to keep believing, to keep trusting Jesus, to keep choosing Jesus on a heart level over anything and everything else. To keep have, living a life of faith. Okay? And we talked about how we need others in our lives to remind us, even when it's hard, even when we're tired, even when, as is the case in the book of Hebrews, there might be persecution against Christians. You know, maybe in your case, it's things like just peer pressure or your family not, not, not agreeing with you, your family not being pleased with your choices, even in these sorts of circumstances, we can keep believing, we can keep prioritizing God over anything and everything else, and we can keep living the life of faith because it is worth it. And we encourage each other to keep believing and to keep running. So now today, we're going to look at restoration, restoration, and church discipline. Now I'll explain those terms a little bit more as we go, but turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Restoration and church discipline. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, says this, Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're going to ask a few questions of this passage today as we seek to understand it and apply it in our lives. First of all, what is the problem described here? What is the problem in this verse, in this passage? It says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone is caught in sin, that's the situation, that's the problem it's describing. And when we say caught in sin, I don't mean that I catch you in sin. What we mean is that you are caught up in sin. You you have fallen into sin. 
Now, I referred a lot, as we've already said in my last sermon, to this metaphor of running a race, this metaphor that comes straight out of the book of Hebrews. And as we've said, the big emphasis in the book of Hebrews is remembering the reward that awaits us at the end of the race, so that we remember that it really is worth it to run the race and keep running the race, no matter how hard it gets, all the way to the end. We talked about our need to encourage each other, help each other along the way. So now, sticking with the same metaphor, what do we do when someone falls? Someone's running alongside us and they get tripped up. Sin, you can imagine sin as maybe, maybe some ropes wrapped around their legs, tangles them up, ties their legs together, and they fall down flat on their face. What do we do? Remember, sin is deceptive. Sin is deceptive. We saw that in the, in the book of Hebrews. The deceitfulness of sin hardens our hearts, draws us away from God. It lies to us. It tricks us. It sneaks up on you and you think it's harmless and then it pounces. And so it should not be surprising to us, brothers and sisters. It should not be surprising to us when we are running and we get caught up in sin. And we find ourselves flat on our face. It should not be surprising to us when our brothers and sisters get tripped up in sin and they fall flat on their face. It should not be surprising to us even when mature Christians struggle and get caught up in sin. This is a very real danger for every Christian. For every Christian. This is something we have to be mindful of. We have to know what to do when this happens. So what is needed in this situation? What is needed when this happens? When someone falls into sin, when they fall down on the track, or maybe they start running off the track, what do we do? Well, according to this passage, we definitely don't just keep running. We don't just keep running uh, like it's not our problem, right? All right, let me just think about myself. Let me just keep going. Even as we were just saying with our memory verse, that is not the Christian life. Christians don't just live their lives thinking about themselves. They live their lives caring for others, helping others. And the need is restoration. Restoration. In other words, we want to get that runner back up on their feet. We want to get them back on the track, headed in the right direction. We want to get the sin untangled from around their feet. And we want to get them making good progress towards the finish line again. Restoration includes confession of sin. Confession of sin. A person caught up in sin needs to see their sin as being sin. They need to recognize, okay, this thing that I've got caught up in, this does not honor God. And they need to confess that to God and ask his forgiveness. In cases where the Christian has sinned against somebody else, 
they also need to go and ask that person for forgiveness. The Bible's very clear about that. Confess their sin to that person and ask that person to forgive them. And this is not just about confession. It's also repentance. Repentance. We've talked about this word a fair amount in going through the Gospel of Mark. But by way of reminder, what is repentance? To repent is to turn away from sin, to turn away from uh, any sort of allegiance I might have to anything or anyone other than God. And I need to turn to Christ and towards obeying Him, living for Him, choosing Him over other things. Now, as best you can, right? Out of love for Jesus and submission to Him as your Lord and your King, you obey Him. Again, we're not talking about work salvation here. This isn't a matter of, of I do this perfectly. But the point is not, perf- or, yeah, what? not perfection, but direction, right? I'm not living for sin anymore. I'm turning away from sin. I'm following Jesus. That's repentance. And sometimes as we seek to help somebody do this, as we seek to help restore somebody, sometimes it'll be one conversation, right? We just hold the mirror up for them, let them see clearly what's happening in their life. They feel the weight of conviction. They go directly to the Lord, ask His forgiveness, and they turn and they change. But sometimes people will need us to walk alongside them for a while. Sometimes they'll need us to walk with them for quite a while. As we've said, no Christian obeys perfectly. We all mess up. We all sin. But a true Christian wants to honor God more than they want to sin. They believe Him. And that belief results in a life of obedience. So, my friends, ultimately this is not just about behavior modification. This is not just about telling somebody, stop doing that, start doing this. What our goal is, is helping them to believe. Helping them to believe. Reminding them of truth. Reminding them of who God is and what He's done for us in in Jesus. Reminding them of why that is better. Why that is worth living for. Why that's worth dying to sin for. Helping them live in accordance with that truth. To the honor of God, to the glory of God. For their good. Our goal is to help them return to running the race of the Christian life. To help them return to obedience to God and the joy that comes with that. The joy and peace of walking with God. And helpfulness to other Christians as well. Okay, that's, again, that's what all of our lives are about, right? Part of following God, part of living for Him, part of honoring Him as a Christian includes ministering to others, doing the work of ministry. Loving others. Now, who must do this? Who must do this work of restoration? Our passage says, you who are spiritual. 
you who are spiritual. Now it's a common misunderstanding to think that this must be a job for the pastor, for the paid professional, right? For the pro. Or if the pastor isn't available, then maybe another leader in the church, an, an elder or a GC leader, some sort, of, some sort of key leader in the church. Or if they're not available, then maybe at least an older, wiser Christian. Somebody not, not me, right? Somebody not me. But my friends, this term, you who are spiritual, doesn't refer to a special class of super spiritual Christians. That's not what the point is. Remember, when we read our Bibles, context is very important. Okay, and by context, I mean where this passage that I'm reading, how does that fit into the big picture of the Bible, into the storyline of the Bible? Is it Old Testament? Is it New Testament? Where, where, where is this? And then also by context, I mean what immediately precedes this passage in the book I'm reading and what follows after it. Okay? So now in understanding this term, you who are spiritual, it helps us to realize that in, in Galatians chapter 5, just before we get to our passage, Paul is talking, he's contrasting the works of the flesh, okay, the works of the flesh, that is the sinful things that our sinful natures desire, that our sinful natures do. He's contrasting that with the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the God-honoring things that bless others, that bring God glory, the God-honoring desires and actions that the Holy Spirit produces within us and helps us to live out. These are the two ways of living. We can walk by the Spirit or we can live in the flesh. We can allow ourselves to be influenced and led by our sinful desires or we can allow ourselves to be influenced and led by the Holy Spirit within us. So then, what does it mean to be spiritual? Well, in context, it's clear that this is just referring to people who are choosing to walk in the Spirit. People who are choosing to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus and the things he calls us to. In other words, this is referring to people who are living the Christian life. People who are running the race. Which means then that every Christian, remember, we don't follow Jesus perfectly, none of us do. That every Christian who's at least faithfully living the Christian life, who's at least running the race, every Christian who's not flat on their face themselves, currently caught up in sin, every Christian should see this ministry as their responsibility. Remember from our first sermon in this series, Ephesians tells us the work of the ministry is for every Christian. For every Christian. And this is not to say, right, this is not to say that there's no place for getting counsel or no place for asking somebody to come help you in your ministry to others. But that is very different from shrugging your shoulders and just thinking, ah, it's, it's not my job. It is your job, my friends. It is your job. If you are a Christian, God is calling you 
to the ministry of restoration. Number four, how must we do this? How, how must we do this? Well, our passage says that this ministry of restoration, this, this goal of restoring someone, it should be done gently. It should be done gently. Remember, when we talked about speaking the truth in love, we said, yes, it's very important. What the world often doesn't do is the world doesn't tell us the truth that we need to hear. The world avoids awkward conversations. The world prefers to flatter us and tell us what makes us happy. And Christians recognize, no, no, no. We, we need, even if it's difficult, even if it's awkward, I need to be faithful to tell you what you need to hear, to tell you the truth. But it's more than that, right? We, we talked about how speaking the truth in love is also about how you say what you say. The truth cuts, right? And we don't just get to run around waving a machete like madmen, right? We need to be careful. The analogy I used in that sermon was the difference between a butcher and a surgeon, right? Very careful, very precise. Gently. We aim to make hard things, things that are hard to hear, we aim to make them as easy to hear as possible. We still speak the truth. We make it as easy to hear as possible. Without unnecessary bluntness, without unnecessary harshness, in private, right, rather than in front of people in some embarrassing way, ideally at an appropriate time, where we can have a good conversation about this, assuring people of our love for them and of God's love for them, trying to instill hope in them so that they don't feel discouraged, so they don't beat themselves up. Speak the truth to them in love with gentleness, with gentleness. This passage also says we must be watchful. We must be watchful. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. My friends, just because you are running the race well right now, doesn't mean that next week you're not going to be flat on your face. Okay? We're all weak. Sin can deceive any one of us. So we don't just, even as we go into this seeking to help others, we recognize I've got to be watching over myself because if I'm not careful, I can end up flat on my face. I can end up tripped up. I can end up caught up in sin. And what, what do we mean here by this watchfulness? Well, let me give you a few possible applications of this. Maybe a guy is seeking to restore a sister in the Lord who he, he's become aware of, of some sin that she's been caught up with. But in seeking to encourage her and, and counsel her and call her back uh, to, to living for the Lord, He's not careful about how emotionally connected they're becoming. Right? And so they slip, end up slipping into, into sexual sin. Someone who's trying to help a friend who's relapsed maybe into drug addiction or, or, or well, drug use or, or drunkenness. And then as you walk alongside this person, you're not 
mindful of the fact that these things are tempting to you too. And you find yourself caught up in the same things in due time as well. Someone intends to talk to a fellow Christian about the way they've been slandering and gossiping about this uh, ungodly speech that they have, right? But then they're not watching over themselves, and the next thing, they find themselves sitting and listening intently to another juicy story that they should not be giving their ears to at all, right? They end up caught up in the very sin they're trying to call someone away from. I've got a, actually a very vivid uh, illustration of this from, from my own life experience where I, I went, there was a friend of mine, it was an awful, awful situation. By God's grace, he's walking with God now, which is amazing. God's work in his life is, is, is incredible to bring him back from where, from where he was, to restore him from where he was. There's a married man who was getting caught up in drug use and, um, and sexual infidelity towards his wife. Habitually, not just slipping up here and there, like just caught up in these things and they were building a lot of momentum in his life. And I went over to his home one night to try and plead with him and and um, as the night progressed, he started having friends come over. And then next thing I know, there's a very inappropriate movie on the TV. And there's very flirtatious girls over. And this friend of his and that friend. And everybody's saying, okay, well, these two are going to pair up. And these two are going to pair And I realized, whoa, whoa, whoa i got to get out of here. i got to get out of here. I, I need to talk to this guy. I need to keep begging and pleading with him, but now's not the time. I need to keep watch over myself, right? I need to keep watch over myself. Number five, what should motivate us to do this? What should motivate us to do this? Notice in this passage that Paul addresses Christians as brothers. Brothers. My friends, there's a pastor named Russell Moore who's written some wonderful stuff on adoption. And he talks uh, not just about adoption here in, in, in this life, but our adoption by God into his family. And one of the points he makes, he talks about an illustration with his two adopted kids. And people would often ask him, are they, are they brothers? Okay, And what they mean is, are they biological brothers? You know? do, they, do they have the same biological mother, the same biological father? That's what they mean. But Russell Moore used to get a bit irritated by this because he, they don't have the same biological parents. But they are brothers. Right? They are brothers. They've been adopted into the same family. And so he would make a, a very, very intentional point about just saying, yes, they're really brothers. And I think sometimes in the Christian church, right, we, don't, we, we need to be reminded about the same thing. We're not sort of kind of brothers and sisters. 
We are eternal family because we've been adopted by God. We are really brothers. We are really brothers. We are really family in Christ. 1 Peter 1 says this, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. See, this is just one example of many of the fact that God doesn't just, this isn't just about terminology. God expects us to love each other as family. God expects us to treat each other as family. To live this out. We do not live this Christian life alone. We're in this together. Okay, so here's this reminder. That person who's fallen down flat on the track, that's your brother. That's your brother. Don't just keep running and leave them there. Go get him. Help him get up. Help him keep running. That's your brother. Paul also tells us that by doing this, by, by restoring others, we bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Now, bearing burdens is a very broad category. The Bible talks about uh, all sorts of examples of what this would look like. It talks about us comforting others. The burden somebody might be going through of, of having lost a spouse or, or um, you know, realizing that, that, that they have a terminal illness or, or any sort of just big disappointment or, or, or opportunity for grief in their life. We need to comfort others. It talks about us serving one another, you know, whatever the needs may be. Serving one another. We, we, you've got this, this big need. Let me help you with that need. It talks about us contributing financially to the needs of the saints. All sorts of burdens that we can bear in one another's lives as we love one another as family. But the specific example here in this passage is this example of restoring somebody caught in sin. That's the burden that we bear. Somebody's got caught up in sin and they're feeling shame and guilt. They're feeling fearful that this, maybe that this sin is going to build some momentum in their life. We need to get in there with them and bear that burden with them. They're weighed down with the heavy load of sin. Okay. Picture somebody carrying something heavy, like let's say something, yeah, like a fridge, right? Something really heavy, something they, can, they, they can't possibly carry alone. You need to get, out, get there alongside them and get your shoulder under that load that they're carrying and bear that weight with them. Now, sometimes we've had this experience, right? I, I'm sure you have. That same scenario, you see maybe helping somebody move. People are carrying a couch or, or, or you know, a washing machine or something like that, something heavy. And you go over to try and help. But the particular place where you go, right, you're standing there and you're like, okay, whether my hands are there 
or not. It's all the same, right? I'm trying to lift this thing, but other guys have got it. The way they're standing, they're, 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 they're carrying the weight. They're, the load is actually on them, not on me. Okay? Now, my friends, since we're not just talking about going through the motions, we're not just talking about taking a photo opportunity. Ah, snap. There he is. He was also helping carry the couch, right? We're talking about actually bearing a load, okay? So what I would, what, what, what I would say to my son in a situation like that is it's like, okay, you're not feeling the weight where you are. Don't, you know, don't just follow along. La, 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 right? You need to go and, and realize the guy at the front of the fridge his back is breaking. Go stand there next to him. Go lift next to him. But if you're not feeling the weight, look for the weight. Right? I'll go, and my point here is that we should expect this to be work, and we actually are, are looking to, to bear as much weight as possible because our whole point, the whole goal, is to take weight off somebody else. Okay? The whole goal is to take weight off somebody else. And then of course there'll be times where we check in on a situation and we realize, okay, these guys have got this, this is fine. He's already got two or three friends walking alongside him. It's okay. Right? But we shouldn't be quick to do that. Our goal, what we should actually want from the situation is, I want to be able to contribute. I want to feel some weight on my shoulder. I want to know that I'm taking some weight off you. That's what I'm actually looking to do. We should expect to shoulder weight. Because many of these situations are heavy. And we should aim to shoulder weight. Because that means taking weight off others. Some examples, right? We already talked about how it can be awkward. Be awkward. Difficult conversations talking to people about things that they don't want to hear. People can get upset at you because they feel like you're judging them. Like you're not really loving them if you're not supporting them in this or that that they want to do. It can require a lot of, a lot of time Carving out time in your schedule to check in with somebody regularly and hold them accountable. Each individual conversation can be very complex and can take hours depending on the situation, right? Heartache and disappointment. My friends, this is very real. I hate that this is true. This is, this is one of my least favorite things about this life. How you can pour yourself into someone trying to help them only to see them eventually still walk away from the Lord. It's awful. It's real. But this, this is a weight God calls us to bear. On one occasion, I had to stay up with a young man all night long. Stayed up with him in his bucky. Just sitting there in his bucky with him as he was contemplating suicide. And I realized... You know, if I leave him alone now, 
Maybe he'll commit suicide, but at the very least, it seems like he's going to do something like go out and get horribly drunk. He's going to do something he's going to regret. So bearing his burden, feeling that weight and bearing that burden with him required a sleepless night. That's what it required to love him. Seek to restore him. All this Paul says is fulfilling the law of Christ. In Galatians 5, again, just one chapter earlier, we see this verse, verse 13. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Sounds like our memory verse, right? The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we've been working with this analogy of running a marathon together, right? Well, let's, let's tweak that metaphor a little bit. Let's add to it a little bit. Imagine that the course that you have to run is in a war zone. And you and many others, your brothers, your family, need to run across a long stretch of open land. And there's bombs going off. There's machine gun fire. The only place of safety is there, on the other side of that open stretch of land. You have to run. You all have to run. You all have to keep going. And you are a medic. You're a medic. That's your role in the army. You're a medic. Your responsibility is not just to run. Your responsibility is to care for all the people who are getting shot. All the people who are collecting, you know, getting hit by shrapnel as bombs go off. That is the picture we're looking at here. Our job is not just to run. Our job is also to help those who are falling along the way. John 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. We fulfill the law of Christ. We fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus lived in perfect accordance with God's law. That's why he's able to save us. We all fall short of God's standards, including his standard of how we should love our fellow man. My friends, you deserve death. I deserve death. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible tells us very, very clearly. We all deserve death, except Jesus. He alone fulfilled God's standards. He alone fulfilled God's laws perfectly. And this means, one, when he died on the cross, he did not deserve it. He was not paying for his own sins. He was paying for ours. He was paying our debt, securing our forgiveness. He was serving us. He was loving us. He was laying down his life for us. And that, Jesus says, is the standard. That's the second reflection from this. That is the standard. 
If we're to love one another as he's loved us, we should be laying down our lives. We should be sacrificing in order to serve one another, to meet one another's needs, to pursue one another's good. We follow a Savior who came to rescue us. We need to do our best to rescue others in need. Why do we do this? Because we're brothers and really brothers. And because of how Jesus loved us and our call, the God's call on our life to live as he lived and to love as he loved. But now, okay, does this always work? Are we always able to restore somebody caught up in sin? What do we do if it doesn't work? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Don't worry, I won't, uh, won't spend as much time in this passage as I've spent in the last one. Matthew 18. There's a process that God has given us for what we do when someone is caught up in sin and they don't repent. They don't repent when that sin's pointed out to them. And that process is often called church discipline. Take a look with me at verse 15, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So that's, that's what we've already seen in Galatians 6. You see somebody caught up in sin, you go to them, you talk to them about it, and they listen, they respond. They confess their sin, they repent from their sin. They're running the race again. Beautiful. Mission accomplished. They're restored. But then, what if he does not repent? What if he stubbornly continues in his sin. Well, then the process of church discipline continues. Take a look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay? So maybe for whatever reason, somebody's thinking you're overreacting, they're downplaying what you're saying, they don't think what they're doing is actually sinful, or is actually a very big deal, or part of how you make it clear to them that it is serious, part of how you make it clear to them that, they, that repentance is important, part of how you sound the alarm that we were talking about uh, in previous sermons of how sin uh, has this effect of hardening our hearts and making us calloused and unfeeling so that we, we're less bothered by it and we get more comfortable doing it. Part of how you sound that alarm is you show the seriousness of, look, I'm not the only one talking to you about this. This brother here agrees with me. This brother is also pleading with you. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin, please. And if he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. So here the idea is, okay, and the way we would, we would do this is we've got... Okay, so in one sense, right, this is the church. 
But within the church, we have our church members. We have those that we have affirmed as saying, okay, we're confident that you, you understand the gospel, that you uh, have saving faith, that you are born again, you are a Christian, and we're living out this life together as this family, this family of Christ here in Pretoria West. You're, you're part of the church. Okay, so at like a church family meeting, what we would do is we would tell all the members of the church, we'd say, please, we're worried about so-and-so. Please go after them. Please plead with them. They're continuing in a way of sin. Okay? And then step four. And if he refuses, this is the second half of verse 17. If, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, sometimes people misunderstand this to think that the whole point is now you, now you must be cold and unloving and distant from this person. Now you must shun this person. Now you must be unkind to this person. That's not the point at all. The point is, you must treat this person as someone that is not saved. Okay? You must treat this person as someone who is not saved. Which doesn't mean being unkind to them. It just means you don't treat them as a Christian. You don't treat them as someone who is in the family. You don't treat them as someone who should have confidence, who should have assurance that they are saved and that they will one day be with the Lord for eternity. So what would that mean then? It would mean things like, okay, uh, sorry brother to use you as the example, but it says Zamani. Zamani here, he's serving in an official capacity. You guys are, are quite used to seeing him almost every week, if not every week, running our projection here. Okay? Um, or Akani, serving here on our worship team, playing, playing the guitar. Okay? If we come to this place where we don't think either of these brothers is a believer, if we've got concerns because the way that they're actually living is not, it's not, it's not, we're not seeing faith overflow in their actions. We're seeing unbelief overflow in their actions. We're seeing deeds of the flesh overflow in the actions rather than than fruit of the Spirit. Their life seems to indicate that they're actually not a believer. Well, then what we would say to them is, okay, Zamani, we don't want you serving anymore. Akani, we don't want you serving anymore. These are, these, are, these are positions for members of the family. Okay? And right now, it seems you're not part of the family. We would... Ask them not to take communion. Because what is communion? Communion is supposed to be encouraging us and reminding us that we are forgiven in Christ because Christ gave himself for us. Well, if you're not living in a way that indicates that you believe, if you're not living in a way that indicates that you are born again, I actually don't want to give you that comfort. I don't want to give you that assurance. I want to remind you that it's available to you if you turn from your sin and go to Christ. It's available to you if you put your faith in Jesus. 
But you should not be thinking that you are a Christian currently because your life doesn't reflect that. So no, don't, don't take communion. And in general, right, I'm not going to speak to you as if you are a Christian. I'm going to speak to you as someone who needs to become a Christian. As somebody who needs to turn from their sin and turn to Christ in faith and obedience. Now, I realize this might sound overboard to some of you. It might sound a bit extreme. Okay? Let's think about what's happening, though, in this process. See, the longer somebody remains stubbornly stuck in their sin, the longer somebody dismisses people calling them to repent, calling them to honor the Lord in their choices, in their living, that gives us less and less reason, right, for confidence that they're a Christian. Because they're persisting in stubbornly rebelling against God. And so then increasing efforts from the church, things obviously getting more and more serious. Okay, well, first you came, now there's two or three. Now the whole church is talking to me about this. These, in, in, the increasing intensity of this is supposed to sound an alarm. It's supposed to say to somebody who doesn't think that their sin is a big deal that it should make them afraid. It should be reason for concern. They should evaluate themselves to see if they're in the faith. They shouldn't have confidence that they are in fact a true believer if they're not living like one. One of the worst possible things we could do for somebody, right, would be to assure them that they are a Christian, that they will spend eternity with God in heaven, that they will not go to hell, Imagine assuring somebody of that and saying, you've got nothing to worry about. You're fine when they're not. Okay? We have a responsibility not to do that. So if there's reasons for concern, we sound the alarm. We sound the alarm. Now, there's a few principles along the way here, right? The goal always is restoration. It's not punishment, okay? The point's not, oh, we tell the church so that you, you know, so that you feel so bad about, the, no. We tell the church so that a whole army of rescuers can go after you. Okay? We're not announcing it with a, with a, a, a megaphone uh, to anyone in the streets, right? We're telling the church and saying, go get him. Bring him back. Menach, he's bleeding. <laughs> Go attend to him. And along the way, right, at each step, we, you keep it to the smallest circle possible at the time, right? So that circle does get bigger and bigger as necessary with time. But, you know, if uh, I know Zamani got, got drunk this last weekend, I can go and have a conversation with him. And if he turns from that sin, confesses that sin to the Lord, turns from that sin, I don't have to tell anybody else. Nobody else has to know about that. Okay? And that's part of how I love him. Right? I'm, my goal is not to, like, give him a bad name and, 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 and gossip and slander. No, my, my goal is to restore him. If I restore him, great. Wonderful. Let's move on. Right? 
Now, this concept of discipline sounds very unpleasant, obviously. I mean, that, that word, we think of that word, and it sounds very unpleasant. But listen to the book of Hebrews to put this in context. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. My son, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Right? Don't, when, when God's disciplining you, don't, don't think of it as a small thing. It's serious. It's weighty. Right? But then look at this. Nor be weary when reproved by him. Don't, don't, get, don't get annoyed by it. Don't get tired of it. Right? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. God is our father. He's not going to just leave us alone when we shipwreck our lives. He's committed to restoring us. Because he loves us. He's committed to restoring us even if it's painful. Because he loves us. He wants what's best for us. This is an act of love. It's a commitment to not just walk away from someone and give up on them, but to exhaust our efforts, to do everything we can in trying to bring them back, in trying to get them up off the ground and back on their feet and running the race again. Listen to this passage from Matthew 18. These, these are the verses directly before directly before this passage on, on church discipline. And this is, this is how we should understand this whole process, the, the purpose of it, the intent of it, the heartbeat of it. Matthew 18, verse 12. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. That's what this is about, my friends. That's what this is about. And this is what God calls us all to. Restoration. Amen.